Hello and welcome to the Booktopia podcast. I'm Olivia. I'm here with Ben Hunter, our fiction expert, and we're sitting across from Diane Armstrong. Welcome, Diane. Thank you very much, Olivia. Um, Diane, you've come in with The Collaborator, um, which is a, a fascinating book of intrigue, uh, portrayal and redemption uh, set against the darkest chapter of Western history, um, which moves from Sydney to Budapest and Tel Aviv. Um, would you like to tell us about this new story? Well, when I first heard this true story, I felt a shiver of recognition and I knew that shiver because it means that I've come across a story that I absolutely have to tell in some way. Of course, the way in which I then tell it, that becomes another problem. But mm. it's the basic story that got me excited when I first heard about it. Um, tell us about this uh, little thread that um, hooked you in. Was it um, research or...? Well, somebody just happened to mention that in Budapest in 1944, a Jewish activist confronted Adolf Eichmann and as a result of the negotiation between them, he managed to get hold of a train on which he rescued over 1,500 Jews from certain deportation to Auschwitz. It is... Oh. Absolutely remarkable. But that's only part of the story. <laughs> but wait, there's more. Because the story in itself is pretty amazing to think of someone so powerless daring to confront the most dreaded Nazi next to Hitler. Yes. So that's pretty amazing. But what happened to the man afterwards? See, you sort of think, well, okay, he's a hero. But it didn't turn out like that at all. I don't want to give a spoiler. No. So... All I can say is that what actually happened to this man as a result of the incredible feat that he achieved was something that nobody could ever have foretold. It was followed by tragic consequences that gave me the shivers when I heard about them. Mm. And so you've, you've fictionalised this man's story in 1944 yes. in Budapest and... Then we jump to 2005, where Annika is um, looking back to the past and the story of her yes. grandparents. Because Annika is a thread in the story, a very vital thread in the plot. And she's fairly typical in a way of third generation Holocaust survivors who really don't know anything about what happened to their families, and that's mm. not uncommon. And Annika just popped into the story quite unannounced. I was sitting one day at my computer, and I'm thinking, okay, I've got this incredible story about this Jewish activist in Budapest, and yes, and he did this and this, and that happened, and wow, how amazing. And then suddenly this young woman walks into the screen, and I'm looking at her and I'm listening to her and she goes to visit her grandmother, whom she doesn't get on with terribly well. Turns out the grandmother hasn't really told her anything about her past and the grandmother originated from Budapest. Mm. And so Annika goes to visit the grandmother and before she visits her, she goes to the Jewish Museum to see if she can find out something about 
what happened altogether. She doesn't know anything about uh, the Holocaust, really. She knows very little. And she finds a photograph of her grandmother along with a list of survivors and a photograph of people who this man rescued on his train. So she goes back to um, her grandmother, thrilled that she's got something to talk to her about, anticipating that she's going to hear the story of how this grandmother was saved, but instead of which the grandmother shuts her up in no uncertain terms and says, I never want to hear that man's name ever again. Mm. And that sets Annika off on her journey to try and find out who this man was who rescued her grandmother. It becomes an obsession, doesn't it? Yes. Very quickly. Um, and it's a, it's a wonderful clash between her experience with um, the survivors working or volunteering in the Jewish Museum who are so forthcoming, um, almost out of a sense of duty to tell their, their story. But her, um, her family, her mother and her grandmother, um, are very hushed up about the past and they look to the future. Is that... Is that a common experience in, in survivor families? or It's a very common experience. I was very fortunate. It was not my experience. My parents mm. were very forthcoming and they told me what happened to them, what happened to their relatives, 63 of whom I worked out one day had been murdered during the Holocaust. I'm a child Holocaust survivor myself. But my parents didn't keep it a secret they were very open about what happened to them before the Holocaust, during the Holocaust. So I, I was filled in with the stories. Mm. I knew what happened. But that was not the experience of a lot of other people who actually, after they read some of my books, wrote to me to say, thank goodness you've written this because my parents never told me anything and now I've got some insight into what might have happened or what did happen. And so Annika's experience was not unusual. Mm. And now I guess you're reflecting on all of this um, as the daughter of survivors and now as a grandmother yourself um, with a, a new generation um, who m must be coming to you um, as kind of the source of those stories. Well, yes, I'm, and I'm thrilled that they're all so interested in the stories that I tell them and in the books that I write because we've got to keep the story alive. Mm. Yeah, absolutely too. <laughs> Um, and your 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 past your you were born in Poland, but this story of course looks to Hungary to Budapest, and you really beautifully evoke this city. Um, did you travel there to research, or or um, was it just a matter of uh, hitting the books, or how, how did you how did you go about um, bringing this city to life? Well, I did visit Budapest, and I did find it an intriguing city of contrasts, mm -hmm. and. Um, I could just visualise Annika walking through the streets and some of the things that happened to Annika actually did happen to me when I was in Budapest. But you'll be very relieved to know that I didn't start a relationship with a tour guide as Annika does. <laughs> um, we uh, need to take a look at this this character that's 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 driving this story um uh and i don't want to spoil it but uh um you know liv and i use this term compelling when we talk <laughs> about books um uh, but this 
this guy magnetizes the reader to the page because there's 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 a lot of um, uh, flaws and there's a lot of um, uh, two-sidedness going on here that immediately becomes apparent to the reader and you you hold that back really ardently in your writing um, and you keep us pushing on um, how, how do you go about constructing these stories from the past into fiction and then and then building them into a thriller um, kind of, you know giving it that level of engagement that compulsion to read that I guess you're asking me, how do I turn history into mystery? Yes. Um, to go back to your initial comment about um, the ambivalence of the different qualities mm. of my character, whom I've called Miklos Naji. When I said I was enthralled by the story, there's one aspect of the story that enthralled me that I haven't mentioned, and that is what you've just touched on, the moral ambiguity at the heart of the story. Who was this man? What motivated him? He was later incredibly accused of being a collaborator. What does that mean? Who are the collaborators in wartime? Perhaps all of us are collaborators to some extent. And I just found that balance between the heroic courageous thing that he did and what he had to do in order to achieve it one of the most fascinating aspects of the man's character and actions it really is um it's not also not a perspective that you usually see or not that it's not a perspective you usually see but it's just there's so many facets to a holocaust story there is no one holocaust story and you know um what am i trying to say you know, there's no end to the stories that you could tell. It seems that we've barely scratched the surface. So this seems like this is more of a story about how ordinary people react when they're pushed to violent extremes, like a lot of people in the Holocaust were. Well, I'm glad you mentioned that because that actually is one of my mainsprings. The things in all my books, what I'm absolutely fascinated about is the way that ordinary people react in extraordinary situations when their resilience and their courage is put to the test. And I think that says something about humanity altogether. So that I think that stories like that transcend Hungary, 1944, war and the Holocaust. They're the stories of who we are, who we can be, who we might be in the worst aspect of our characters and who we might be, who we might rise to be at the height of what we're capable of. Mm. That presents a wonderful challenge to a writer, I guess. Yes, because it's not a black and white story. It's not, this is a hero and he did this, maybe, and he was a hero, but maybe was he a traitor as well? Was he a collaborator as well? Does it matter? Does the end justify the means? Would mm. those 1,500 people have been better off if he hadn't met with Eichmann and his um, secondary, his other Nazi um, colleague, Kurt Beecher? Mm. But you asked me something before about how do you go about turning it into a mystery or into mm. a story? I just... 
I'm trying to think how to answer that because I'm not even sure of the answer myself. I actually think that writing fiction is magical. You start off with a certain situation, maybe a certain character, maybe both a character and a situation. And somehow, without consciously knowing how it's going to work out, you end up with this, a, a book that's 450 pages long and a very complex story. And I was thinking about that the other day, and I think one way of looking at it is this. There's knowledge and there's intuition. Mm. The knowledge is what you know. The intuition is what you don't know you know. It's the subconscious part of your brain that often takes over as you write. And that's why I can sit in front of a blank screen and wonder what on earth do I write next? And before I know it, Annika walks in and then I meet her grandmother. Now, none of these things are necessarily planned beforehand. I didn't know they were there. I didn't know that they would say the things that they say. I didn't know they would do all the things that they do. So that's the intuition part. Mm. Um, and, and another challenge <laughs> um, you've presented yourself with in this project was presenting Eichmann and and Becker is it pronounced Beecher Beecher um, or maybe Becher I'm not sure, sure. <laughs> good question <laughs> um, but two two Nazis high profile Nazis um, uh, who had very different outcomes um, Eichmann we know. Um, from, yeah, most people know the name Eichmann from the dramatic um, capture and trial in Jerusalem and the, uh, um, what was the banality of evil yes, um, Hannah, argument? Hannah Arendt's phrase. Um, and, but this other character uh, was not uh, prosecuted um, after the war. He, he actually lived on in West Germany. Um, tell us about uh, the challenge of sort of putting those two faces or two, two men in, into fiction? Well, I've kept their names mm. as they are. Mm. I didn't fictionalise the names. Obviously, I wasn't present at any of the conversations, so that I had to invent. But I was just fascinated by the character of Kurt Beecher. I was fascinated by his um, affability, by his corruption, Mm. by his greed, and yet he did help. Yeah, or is that helping? <laughs> well, he helped himself primarily, but he was instrumental. In survival. I don't, I don't want to go into too much detail into how all that panned out mm. because that's really part of the, the mystery and the, um, the tragic action, yeah. consequences. Mm. Um, yeah. Uh, one thing we were talking about earlier um, was the, um, well, I guess that that um, the Holocaust and the Second World War is passing out of lived um, experience, out of living memory, and um, we have generations to come in which um, I foresee that more and more people are going to discover this history through fiction, be it film or be it novels. Um, how do you do you have an opinion on who 
has take, can take the permission to write these stories and um, do you foresee consequences of that um, or, uh, or not? Well, I, I don't actually see it as an issue of appropriation. I think these are human stories. They're stories that happened to people, six million of whom have no voice anymore. And maybe that makes it all the more compelling to tell the stories that they are no longer able to tell. But apart from that, I think it's part of human history. We're entitled to write about the Renaissance. Mm. We're entitled to write about the Stone Ages. It's part of human history. It's part of who we are. For better or worse, it happened. And I think the big fear is that as time goes on, fewer and fewer people will um, know anything about it. And I think, as you say, I think fiction is probably the way to um, keep it going because the window of opportunity for survivors to tell their stories is narrowing day by day. Yes. So all we can have now is history books and fiction Mm. And thank goodness the fiction is proliferating. And it's not just the province of Jewish people to tell the story. I mean, as we know, we've got the Tattooist of Auschwitz being written. Yeah, and that is mm. a huge international bestseller now. Exactly. So I don't think there's any limit to who can or cannot write about it. I, I think and the stories are endless and fascinating because we learn so much we read these stories and we think what would I do in that situation how would I react and I think it tests the limits of who we are yes. as humans yeah it yes. really does um but it seems to me that the second world war is a period that writers do keep going back to I mean maybe it is just because of the fact that it's now passing out of our lived experience, but there are so many periods of history that have um, done exactly that. What, what is it about the Second World War that you think really draws writers back to it? I, I think it's an attempt to comprehend the incomprehensible because mm. we've had wars before, but we have never ever had a government whose stated aim was the eradication of an entire ethnic group of people and who succeeded in murdering six million of them, not just in their own country, but in other countries that they invaded. And that had never happened before, not to that extent. There have been civil wars, there have been wars against certain minorities in a country, but never, ever anything and this was murder on an industrial scale and that beggars belief or it would if it wasn't for the fact that people have written about it. I mean even people like um, Hess who was the commandant of Auschwitz, he actually left very detailed account of how he murdered so many people and I always find it strange how these people that claim that the Holocaust never happened how can they ignore the fact that one of the main perpetrators left detailed um, books of how he did it? Mm. I think, I think perhaps that um, people turn to Holocaust fiction um, 
or, or World War Two fiction more in general, either for um, they'll get a, a great story or great entertainment out of it um, and that can inspire people to look to um, that radical part of history and actually educate themselves or it's a matter of um, authors and I think you might count yourself in this category who are trying to comprehend um, the moral complexity of everything that happened and the only way you can tease that out is by fictionalizing in a sense. Yes, I, I, I agree with you and I, I think it's, but it's always people through whom I tell the stories. I tell, I'm a storyteller basically, and I'm enthralled by stories about people and the way people behave. And if I can, in one small way, illuminate something about our human nature, then I feel that's really what I'm trying to do. I could not put that better, Diane. Mm. I think that's the perfect <laughs> note to end on. Um, thank you very much for making the journey out today and having a chat with us. Um, and we really look forward to the collaborator um, going out into the world and being read. Thank you, Ben, and thank you and Olivia for your excellent questions <laughs> and thank comments. You <laughs> thank you for answering this so well. And you can get your copy of The Collaborator from booktopia.com.au. Thank you for listening. Thanks for listening to the Booktopia podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to us on SoundCloud and iTunes. And if your eyeballs need a workout, check us out on YouTube at Booktopia TV. And don't forget for all books featured on this episode and all episodes of the Booktopia podcast, head to Booktopia, Australia's local bookstore at www.booktopia.com.au. Thanks for listening.